probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... I'm Alan Sanders, writer, director, actor, and radio personality. Uh, it kind of says it all. <laughs> so today we are talking about Minute 39 of The Thing, which uh, begins with the helicopter landing, and uh, a minute later ends with McCready and Norris starting to walk out onto the actual UFO. A lot of people, you know, when I started this podcast, I was like, uh, you know, oh, man, I know everybody's going to be excited to talk about, like, the, the big special effects sequences and the monsters and stuff like that. But, man, I did not even consider how awesome this, this part of the movie really is and how much I love this section where they, where they discover the UFO. Just, again, with the, the matte painting and, and everything and just the, the setup and the music, everything in this scene is so it, – it boggles my mind how the, just kind of – the atmosphere that it builds and, and it adds a huge bit of the mythology to the movie um, in such a careful way with with very little dialogue. There's a lot of economy of um, or efficiency in, in how they kind of dole out the story. It's it's so visual. Right. I don't even think anybody speaks in this minute at all. It's mm -hmm. all the music and their expressions. Since you started off with the matte painting, I know um, the story behind this particular shot uh, around the 22nd mark mm -hmm. inside this minute where the camera's behind the three of them overlooking the spaceship in the in the crater this was actually shot back in la because they had set up for this matte shot and the the uh, albert whitlock kept waiting for the right light levels and the right light levels and they kept waiting and they kept waiting and i guess the weather was getting bad and they weren't able to get the shot on site, on site, on the scene in uh, in Stewart, uh, uh, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So they had to come back, and I remember seeing a behind the scenes where they set this up on a, a like a, a roll of white fur carpet that they rolled out and created sort of the, just the immediate foreground for them. And this entire thing is a is a matte painting, and it matches color, it matches the light levels, it matches so well. It's hard to believe that this wasn't shot on scene. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible, and that that shot of them just looking out at the the ship is is one of my favorite shots in the entire movie. Um, in that it it gives you because they're there in the foreground, it gives you this immense sense of scale of how big this thing is, and it it looks it has a very kind of classic science fiction movie look, but not not in a, a cheesy way or anything like that, but just. Um, just because that the matte painting is such a kind of an old fashioned technique, it it kind of harkens back in that way, in kind of a subconscious way, and um, and just their their sense of looking out over this huge thing. And the other thing that always strikes me about it too, and, and this happens a couple times in this um, this minute and the next, is the way that the the cloud cover, the shadow, moves across the the matte painting. Yeah, I was going to bring that up in a minute about how they do it a couple of times to give you the sense that as clouds are moving away from the sun or, or clearing and the sun is sort of acting as the reveal too, like mm -hmm. we're, sh we're shining light on what's really happening. They do that a couple of times in this entire scene, this minute and I think into the next minute, mm -hmm. showing the it gives you the sense that there's texture. It gives you a sense that there's something physically really there. 
Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I don't, I don't really almost even really understand how, how they did it <laughs> because it looks, you know, at, at first I was looking and thinking, okay, well, they just put kind of a, you know, they made a darkened version and, and just kind of made a line go across. But it really does feel like the shadow, you know, moves differently across the different kind of, you know, things that are sticking out. It does give a sense of texture, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't know how they did it. If they maybe had uh, a, rather than a, a horizontal line, maybe it was a jagged, and it sort of matched or mirrored the surface bends and twists. But if you watch, uh, especially the close up, uh, right around I think about the forty two second mark, when you see way in the background the guys getting ready to rappel down the side of the inner wall of the cliff, and as that light starts to spread, it's not like a horizontal line. You, but yet it still reveals all the way across as if you see the snow begin to sparkle, you see the shadow, you see the shading, you know, when things would still be blocking the sun, it, it you suddenly forget. It's a, There's no, actually, I say suddenly forget, it doesn't make it feel at all like it's a matte painting. No, no. I, and I, this this was one that I never suspected until I started really digging into this movie. I, I, I always kind of wondered how they how they did this scene because it is such a, you know, if, obviously if they built this, it would be a gigantic thing for them to have to put together. But it, it never even crossed my mind that it was a painting because it looks so absolutely real. And, and some of that stuff like the, you know, the blending it with the foreground and the lighting and the the way that the, the shadows pass just give a huge sense of scale and then blend it with what we know is real in a way that you would never guess. It's, it's such a great effect. Right. And you can see it again, uh, which we were jumping around the timeline, but at the 22nd mark, when they're kind of looking back down over their shoulder and the light actually just slowly passes over the entire ship and then it com- fills back in with shadow as though you've got now multiple clouds giving us that sense that the light may come and go throughout each of these shots makes it not only feel once again you're at a live location you've got sunlight affecting you've got clouds affecting you've got the snow everything works to trick you into believing you're really there with this massive ship that's been uncovered by the norwegians yeah it's it's very 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 clever in the ways that they kind of the techniques they use to kind of sell this, the matte painting effect, it's, it's kind of unreal how, how well it works here. So yeah, looking at, at the ship itself, it's obviously we saw the ship at the very beginning of the movie, but here we get kind of a, a more extended look at it, even though you only see the top side of it. But I love, I love that it is a, a classic kind of flying saucer in some ways that, you know, it is that shape um, definitely harkens back to an earlier age of sci-fi. But I also like the, those kind of giant jet engines that kind of poke off off the sides on the back. Um, it's a it's a very cool looking looking design. I like the way the UFO looks a lot. No, in fact, if uh, anybody gets a chance to see any behind the scenes in the model maker, I mean, this was, again, an actual practical effect when they used the model for the uh, motion capture at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, the What I like about this is, again, not only does it have that classic UFO look, but you get a sense here that it seems like to me, even when you just glance at it, that there is structural damage. There is debris. Things are, are it's not smooth. Like things are sticking up. Things are out of proportion, which goes back to what we said uh, previous a couple of days ago about, you know, how much damage may have been done. Maybe that's why if this uh, when the thing was in the shape of the the wolfhound, if he had come back by a ship, it was useless to him, you know? Yeah, that's that's very true. It's it, it is interesting that, you know, Albert Whitlock, this guy who was, you know, I'm, I don't know how old he was when when he was working on this movie. But, you know, like we said, he was a guy who's been working on stuff since the 50s, you know, uh, the the fact that he's able to design this ship that not only looks like the ship in the beginning, but, you know, we see a little bit more detail in some ways on it. So, you know, he added a lot in that way. But then also, 
you know, added the sense that it's broken up and, and damaged from the from both the crash and from the, the thermite charges that the Norwegians placed. It's pretty incredible that he's able to convey all of that in just that one image that the that the guys see as they lean over and, and see it down the cliff. And it, it, as you said, you know, a lot of people get so caught into the the actual creature effects, the makeup effects later. This is one of those things where you don't even realize this has every bit the amount, the amount of complexity in terms of a special visual effects shot. There's a reason why Albert Whitlock has two Academy Awards for visual effects because he makes it look so real that you know we say to ourselves, okay, we're watching creature effects later, and in our minds we go, okay, that looks cool, but we know that never would really happen. This shot makes us go, wow, they buried an actual ship in the middle of the Antarctic, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I, I definitely – it took me a while, you know, at least a, a few viewings before I really realized like, oh, of course, they didn't actually build that because that would be ridiculous. <laughs> but it totally looks like they did. Like you'd never guess that if you're not like a you know, a special effects nerd or, or watching this movie super closely. And, um, and to understand where to place the camera mm-hmm. to make sure everything, the economy of scale works for both this shot where we're closer – to the backs of our three characters and the ships in the background. But later from this, what looks like this same vantage point, we see them on top of the ship after having rappelled down and are now walking across the surface. And yet it still holds. We, we get the sense like, holy crap, look how far away they are from where the camera was just a few seconds ago. Yeah, it, it, it definitely gives a, a sense of the scale of the distance as well as just how big the ship is, too, that you see it from the same vantage point, but with somebody walking on it. It's, it's, it's a really cool cool way to do that as well. I, I thought it was worth mentioning that um, this is actually one of my favorite little bits of, of trivia that happens in this minute, that at the very beginning when they're exiting the helicopter, that none of those people are the actual actors that play the characters. Um, <laughs> those um, they That was one of the first early things they shot, and it was even before they had hired Kurt Russell to play McCready. So they, I believe, let's see, I have it written down. So playing Palmer is Roy Arbogast, who's one of the special effects guys who, who manages... Uh, a lot of the explosions and stuff like that. Um, the dog trainer, Clint Rowe, is playing Norris. And then none other than John Carpenter himself is playing McCready in this in the shot of them exiting the helicopter, which now that I know that, I can't unsee it. And that that he, he looks nothing like Kurt Russell now, but this his body shape and the way he walks is totally John Carpenter. If, you, you know, if you've watched him in interviews around this time and stuff, this like skinny, goofy guy. Yeah, you can see how lanky he is yeah. when he walks away from the helicopter, back and face ter- purposely turned away from camera. Uh huh. Yeah, it's very not Kurt Russell once you know that, and it, it always kind of makes me laugh now when I see that see that shot. <laughs> but I think it's a cool use of the the wipe to hide the fact that we're going to go to them from a different shot mm-hmm. because we have had so much snow, we've had so much wind and stuff blowing that to, for that instant to become obscure. But in such a way that makes us feel like, oh, okay, it's just a, a snow being blown on the wind. Next thing you know, we are, we're at a shot where the camera's low looking up. And now here comes the actual actors uh, overlooking what's going to eventually be the crater. Yeah, I love those, those wide out fades in this movie. I, the, uh, I've mentioned it in, in a couple spots where they've used it before. But the editor, Todd Ramsey, said he was kind of criticized by some of his colleagues for using uh, fade outs in this movie. But that him and Carpenter really were trying to harken back to kind of an older um, era of sci-fi and, and horror by doing that. And I think it works really well. It definitely kind of, you know, it passes time a, in, a little bit, but it also, it just gives a different sense than a cut would. It it, it gives a kind of an eerie 
atmosphere, I think, especially the whiteouts here when they're out in the snow too. And and it does kind of, there's almost a practical reason for it. Like you said, that it could just be like the snow blowing by and it just works really well. I, I don't think a cut would have done the same thing. Now, see, I like the storytelling element and, and the directorial choice of it in this film because my first recollection uh, much earlier when the dog first walks through the corridors and you see him walk into a room and there's a shadow mm-hmm. on the wall and you see the shadow turn realizing, OK, the dog's in the room and then it just fades to black. And we don't know what happens next. And I like that because it's created that sense of tension rather than a snap cut or jump automatically. It fades and leaves us to think for a second. OK, why, why, why do that? Something draws our attention to that. And I think those kinds of fades help us keep those images in our minds. Definitely. Yeah. And it, instead of kind of just putting a, a period at the end of the sentence of that scene, it, you know, it's almost like an ellipsis. It just, it it's lets, the dot, dot, dot. Exactly. Yeah. It lets you fill out, fill out what you think happens there, which is, is much more kind of atmospheric and, and, you know, lets you kind of imagine the, the horrors or, or the mystery of what's actually going on, which, which works so much better. And, you know, in a larger sense, that's a big part of what this movie is really about is letting you kind of decide what you think about it and, and kind of leaving that mystery up in the air. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, as far as the filmmaking techniques go, I know this is considered, quote, sci-fi horror. But if you watch it from the craft, the framing, the the way that the camera forces us to sense something and feel something or obscure something, you feel like you're sort of there when the, when the when that white fade happens. And you but it doesn't it's not a solid white. It's almost like smoke that gets you know more and more filling the screen so you can't see the actors i feel like wait i've lost track of them and you start like looking at the screen almost as if you're you're following them you're the fourth person in this scene but you just don't know it yet yeah that's that's very true it's which is a a very john carpenter thing to do to kind of put you in the perspective of of an imaginary person that's that's with these people his uh you know a lot of people say that john carpenter is that he doesn't have like a a very well-defined style but one thing you can you can say is is present in almost all his movies is that kind of sense of voyeurism and perspective. Uh, and that definitely works, works for those fades yeah. too. And I think a lot of his movies, you sense the immediacy, like it's happening now. It's not, let me go back and tell you the story. You feel like everything's happening now and it's still happening now as we're watching it. Yeah, that's true. It, 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 there is a real sense of urgency, especially in this movie where you're figuring things out at exactly the same time the characters are. There's, you know, very little information that the characters don't know so you're, you're never really ahead of them you're finding it out at the same time as them which really kind of adds to the suspense too computer how likely is it that one of our guests may be infected with the intruder organism 100 percent. great in that case what are our chances of survival projection if guests make it to other podcasts all of itunes will be infected within 27,000 hours yikes Well, how long can we keep this up in the meantime? Projection. Without listener support, the generator will be destroyed in less than 24 hours and podcasting will be impossible. If only the radio wasn't down, we could reach the mainland and tell the listeners to go to thethingminute.com and use the donate button in the bottom right of the page to help out. Projection. If listeners go to thethingminute.com and use the donate button, chances of the podcast survival goes up 75%. Windows, keep trying. So let's see. The other thing I wanted to mention in this minute is that them descending down the edge of the cliff, that is a real glacial cliff. Um, it's obviously not 
Kurt Russell and, uh, and, and the other actors. Um, although it wouldn't kind of wouldn't surprise me. There was a lot of dangerous stuff that the actors did on this movie with flamethrowers and explosives and, and other things like that. But, uh, yeah, these, these were stunt guys climbing down this, this actual icy wall. And I thought it was kind of funny that in the, the TV version of the movie, which, um, is, uh, they put it on the newest Blu-ray, the, um, the newest release on the special features and it's worth watching in bits and pieces because it is so strange in the ways that they've kind of cut the movie up and changed it. But I noticed, I thought it was kind of funny in this, this part of the movie that this extremely wide shot of them looking out over the UFO, obviously in the TV version, it's, you know, cramped down to a square. So they actually have to do the whole pan and scan trick of it. It actually pans from right to left across them, which really messes up the effect of just how big this thing is. (laughs) It, It just does not work as well as the, uh, the, the giant kind of wide shot that we get of the ship in the in the real version of the movie. You know, and that's a, a side conversation here, but the reason I love getting Blu-rays or special releases, because I'll own some movies in multiple formats simply mm-hmm. because of the stuff they add extra that I didn't have on the last one I bought. And, you know, it's cool to get those little behind the scenes, see the difference. And especially if you love a movie and you're doing something like this where we're sort of just delving into it, really looking at it as a piece of cinema history, because it really is in my mind. It may not be, you know, uh, an Academy Award winning, you know, drama. But to me, in terms of the craft as a lover of sci-fi, of the craft of acting and filmmaking, this is a just a visual you know, a smorgasbord of things to look at and experience and feel and anything little behind the scenes. I love learning about how they made it, how they did things and, and what they had to change for different formats and scans. And I'm just so happy we live in an era where I can have widescreen and watch everything like it was supposed to look at the cinema. Yeah, no kidding. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's, that's one of the things I was a little worried about when I started, started to get the idea to do this podcast. I was like, uh, I wonder if, I, if I'm going to watch all these special features and, and talk about the movie in such depth. I'm probably going to hate it when I'm done. But <laughs> uh, but that really has not happened because I, to me, just um, being able to discuss it and, and watching all this behind the scenes stuff and, and reading up about it, it really doesn't take any of the kind of the, the magic away from it at all. It really, to me, it just kind of adds to it. It's, you know, I, I feel like it gives you, a, and, and not just for this movie, but, you know, when you get to see that kind of behind the scenes stuff, in a lot of cases, it really just kind of adds to your appreciation of it when you see the um the kind of links that the the crew went through to to make it what it is definitely adds to a level of appreciation rather than kind of spoiling it i think yeah and i and i love the fact that when we learn how far they went that they built an actual outdoor set in a, in a, in a steward british columbia just i think on a back of a mining operation mm-hmm. and they had like a one lane road and sometimes there'd be ice on the road and they, they the the bus would start to slide or careen and the idea that they did this location shoot for all the outdoor scenes um again it's it's the realism it's they didn't shoot you know an all blue screen and digitally put the entire atmosphere you know, when there was bad days of light, there was bad days of light. They just had to deal with it. You know, they had to work in the environment. But guess what? I think that got the performances out of these actors, too, because it was cold. They had to work as a team. They were sort of in a survival situation, certainly not alone. But, you know, you weren't exactly in, in ideal working conditions. And I think all of them, when they look back, it was so beautiful in this area of British Columbia that they look back and say, you know, yeah, there were some dangerous things, but it was such a cool shoot to be live in this area that was supposed to represent this Antarctic region. Oh yeah. And, and I think I, I might've brought this up in an earlier minute and I'm, I'm forgetting the names now, but I know the, one of the first people they hired for the movie was the production designer. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but 
And the reason they initially they had somebody else lined up who they had really wanted to do it. It was somebody who I think had worked with with another person who had worked with Hitchcock. But he he insisted that they did everything on a set, that they build everything. And John Carpenter and, and Stuart Cohen and the other producers that were on were just not feeling that. They really felt like, you know, getting out in the environment was really important. And when they hired the the actual production designer, um, John Lloyd, I think is who it is, actually. Um, yeah, John Lloyd, yeah. When they hired him, he was ecstatic about being able to work in, in the actual environment outside and, and thought that was really crucial to the movie. And that's that's when they kind of knew that he was the one they wanted to hire. And, and yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It, it's I think it adds to the realism, but it also adds to, you know, the performances and that they were able to actually react you know, out in the actual snow, in, in you know, <laughs> when it's it's freezing cold and when, you know, they may have kind of risked their life to get up to this place. Like it really adds adds a sense of, of realism to their performances, too. You know, and um, we probably need to do a shout out to uh, the director of photography, Dean Cundy, on yes. this. Because, yes, he was still younger at this point in his career, but John Carpenter liked him since Halloween. And obviously he went on to be the director of photography for the other Halloween movies. But, I mean, for folks who may not know, because let's face it, if we don't, if it's actors and directors, that those are the ones we tend to kick around. But unless you're just sort of a film geek, you don't necessarily know all the people behind the scenes. But in terms of you know, filmmaking, this guy that, you know, he did the Back to the Future, he did Jurassic Park, Apollo 13. I mean, he's done some huge movies after this. So he's a very, very good cinematographer. And that's, I think, another reason I love the framing of so many of these shots. They work so well to help tell this story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's one of those guys who I didn't really know his name before I started, you know, researching for the podcast, but now that I know him, he's absolutely my favorite cinematographer. <laughs> Having known all the things <laughs> things he's worked on, he's so many of my favorite movies. But yeah, I mean, the sense um, that that he gives to this movie, especially in, in the sense of contrast, I think with with dark and light, he you know, among many other things, I feel like that's one of his biggest contributions in getting these kind of stark looks of the people standing against these backgrounds where there's nothing in the background; it's just pure white. You know, it just makes the helicopter stand out. It makes the people stand out. It makes the UFO stand out. All that works in such a great way to kind of emphasize what's going on on screen. And what I love about the risk of building the set, I mean, when they went up initially, and I know Dean Cundy went up there with John Lloyd and others and John Carpenter to look at this area when they did the location scouting, it was summertime. So there wasn't really a whole lot of snow. And they were like, well, is this going to fill in enough? And, you know, and when they came back out, they were like, yep, this is exactly how we wanted it to look. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think Stuart is known as the snow capital of Canada. So uh, or snowfall capital of Canada. So, yeah, they they were hoping that it would fill out. And, yeah, it works perfectly. I mean, it, you know, it just it's such a better effect than, you know, making fake icicles and and, uh, you know, blowing a bunch of fake snow on the set that it's really covered. Like the whole thing is really covered in snow and and. You know, same, same with this scene here where they're you're climbing down this shelf. It's not like it's not like they're climbing down somewhere in a studio and they just added in the fake snow. It's like, nope, this is a real glacier and this dude's really rappelling down. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, again, that's that verisimilitude. Everything is real because so much of it really is there. So much of it is tangible. And I mean, even the fact that where they built this camp, you know, they had trees behind them on one side. So if you look, a lot of times the camera will be low enough that the buildings actually obscure the fact that there's forest. So it always looks like there's just snow and mountains and that's it. Right. Yeah. To, to me, that that kind of thing, too, adds to um, one of the things I, I love about this movie is that this is uh, the turning point in John Carpenter's career where he kind of stopped being an independent director and was 
was on the brink of becoming a uh, a big a Hollywood director who had a much bigger budget on this movie um, than anything he'd done previously. But he really brought that kind of independent filmmaker sensibility to like, well, let's just figure out how we can do this. And, and you know, like film, filming the base all from one angle so they don't see the trees. Or um, I, I mentioned uh, that when they first started shooting the, the helicopter, they only had enough, uh, they only had one helicopter between this one and the Norwegian one. So they have on one side of the helicopter has the U.S. logos and on the other side has the Norwegian logos. <laughs> and so they don't want to shoot it from one direction. Yeah, thankfully one's always coming, one's always going. Yeah. <laughs> so just, you know, bringing that kind of sensibility of like, okay, let's just figure out the best way to do that instead of just throwing money at it and, and getting it done that way is, um, is, is another thing that I think makes this movie what it is. So uh, I, I love that aspect of it too. Yeah, you know, ironically, I had a discussion not that long ago with some other fellow aficionados of film, and I made that comment about I sometimes think directors that have almost these unlimited budgets, they let the the CGI and the and the money fix the problems instead of actually being creative. Mm-hmm. And some of the earlier works by some of these directors tend to be, I think, better because they had the challenge of, okay, how do we make this work with what we've got? Yeah, I mean, you, you look at there's there's – you know, lots of directors who have gone on to do really cool things. But if, you know, that's part of the joy of looking back at their first couple movies is you really do get a sense of how creative they had to be. And, and that really kind of shows and makes makes it something much more interesting than, than you know, when, once they've got the ability to just kind of, you know, hand the reins over to, you know, if they've got a gigantic crew and they've got 14 assistants and, and you know, a billion dollars or whatever, you know, it's a lot easier to just kind of let things happen. But when you're forced, when you've got those limitations and you're forced to kind of be creative, it, it can make something much more interesting. And this movie is right, right in between those two extremes, which is, is one of the things that makes it so cool is that they did have access to a pretty big budget, but at the same time, they had to be really creative with how they pulled this stuff off and, and were using a lot of young talent in the special effects and things like that. So there's, it still breathes with that kind of creativity, even though it's a, it's a pretty big budget movie for the time. Yeah, and I think this was the second time Kurt Russell worked with John Carpenter would be, go on to be in another Escape from New York sequel, which we don't want to talk about now because that was, ter- <laughs> it was terrible. But he, one of my all-time favorite John Carpenter movies, Big Trouble in Little China. So for me, it was, it's cool to see the rise of Kurt Russell as a sort of like the actor that John Carpenter went to multiple times for his movies. Yeah, no, and, and since you bring it up, let's, uh, you know, I always like to talk with everybody about you know, your other, other John Carpenter movies. So it sounds like you're a fan of John Carpenter in general too. I absolutely love John Carpenter. I think, uh, big trouble in little China may be my all time favorite because it took the fantastical, it took the hero, it added a little bit of comedy and it's still one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, when there's nothing else on TV, I'll pop it in and just watch it because I love that so much. But I think one of my favorite in the darker or, you know, scary or, you know, whatever that genre of, uh, evil or otherworldly that I think gets way overlooked, but should maybe one day be maybe a, a retrospect like this is Prince of Darkness. Uh, I think that yes. was a fantastic movie. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you on that. That and you know that that movie follows this one in, in his like loose apocalypse trilogy, and that that movie gets so un, it's so underrated. You never hear anybody talk about it, and it's fantastic. It does such a good job of, you know, in the sense that we talked about this movie using lots of different types of special effects. That movie does all kinds of different horror kind of blended into one where you've got this like religious horror and there's like there's zombies. There's like kind of gross out gore moments and and really 
interesting kind of ways that they explore like the science of, of what's happening too. It's a, that's a fantastic movie. I, I, that's one that I hope kind of has a, um, a resurgence in the way that this movie has for a long time. Any, any other, uh, John Carpenter movies that are, that are regular, regular rewatches for you? Well, I mean, let's face it. We can't not think about John Carpenter without going back to the original Halloween, Mm -hmm. introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. I've always been a fan of The Fog. I remember seeing that and going, this is such a cool story. And I knew it was creeping me out, but it did it in such a way that I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. And again, I was a lot younger, so maybe I was more – it was tricked more easily. But I loved this idea of this – the lore of this cursed treasure and having to come back and that there's these, you know, beings and we're not sure what they are that live in the fog. And I, I think that's another movie where again, atmosphere, ambiance, smoke creates that creepy effect. Yeah. And that's another sense. Um, you know, and that was just, uh, they, in between that and this was escape from New York, but not a whole lot of time had passed between those. And the fog is another one like this, where it is kind of taking some kind of classic horror movie ideas and, and tropes and updating them for a, for a modern audience and with his own kind of perspective on it. So it definitely has some stuff in common with this. Cool. Well, yeah, I think that'll, that'll probably wrap us up for minute 39. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up about this one? No, just uh, we're going to continue on, I think, tomorrow with this continuing shot where they finally do talk a little bit about uh, this scene. And again, I think we'll, we'll end up talking a lot more about the close-ups of the matte painting, the backgrounds, and how it just blends seamlessly together. Yeah, it's uh, this this whole sequence is pretty incredible. I, I love the effect. So, well, that will wrap us up for Minute 39. But um, also, make sure you check out moviesbyminutes.com for a whole collection of other podcasts like this one. So, if uh, if you know if you like the thing, but it's not your favorite movie, if you've got some other other movies that you might be interested in listening to a podcast about, like this, there's a good chance that somebody's already doing it. There, um, it seems like there's a new one that comes out almost every day. So definitely check out moviesbyminutes.com to to see if your favorite movie is on there. And then of course, just make sure to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out.